Hey, one of my favorite jobs growing up was working at an amusement park. I was an Ohio boy all my life. I grew up in Ohio, born in Ohio, uh, and we loved, we absolutely loved Cedar Point up in Sandusky. It's an incredible amusement park, and I got the chance to work there. And I worked back in the games department. One day, I just, this is such a vivid memory of mine. One day, uh, early in the morning, it was so incredibly hot. All summer it was hot, but it was like 85 to 95 degrees, super early in the morning. I opened up my game, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I really have no idea where they came from, but these businessmen, there were 20 businessmen, and they didn't speak a lick of English. I didn't know how to communicate to them. I didn't know what to say. I'm trying to be kind and polite, and they all rushed my game, and just one guy wanted to play, and he comes over, and he speaks to me, and I'm just like, I have no idea what you're saying, and uh, he just, he just could, sh he's trying to show me. I just want to play the game, and uh, he pulls out his wallet, and he opens it up, and I'm talking the fattest stack of cash that I had ever seen in my life, and so I'm like, how am I going to tell this guy? So I just kind of, I reached into his wallet and I grabbed $2 and I reached in with my other finger and grabbed $1. And I set $2 down and $1 down and I showed him, you could get seven rings for a dollar or 20 rings for $2. It was the ring toss, these hard plastic rings and what looked like two liter bottles, but each and every one of these bottles were made out of glass, these hard plastic rings. They just shot off and slipped and slid and it was a loser every single time. This guy and his group of friends, they were so excited. He points to the two, he gets, he takes his one dollar, puts it in his wallet, I sweep away the seven rings and he just has these 20 rings in front of him. I grab his two dollars and as he's, as he's playing, as he's getting ready to play, he's got all of his rings in his hand and he's just kind of getting ready to throw. And this was the most beautiful moment all summer. As he releases all 20 of these businessmen in their full suits, hot and sweaty, they just start cheering him on in a language that I could not discern. And I don't know what they're saying, but they're saying it fast and it's going so fast in the ring, it gets across and hits the glass. Ching, 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 ping, ping, ka-chunk. And every time he lost, the whole group of men, they just went, oh. It was so sweet. He grabbed another ring. He threw it. Clink, 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 ka-chunk. Oh, all of these guys, they were so supportive. They were so excited. And at the end of each and every throw, incredible disappointment. It was incredible to watch, to stand there. And I'm telling you, these guys, they were excited. These guys had such a good time. They were enjoying the moment, but they were not winning. There was no celebration. There was no victory. It was just game over. And, and when they walked away, these, these guys, this guy specifically, but the whole group of guys, they just walked away with their heads hanging low. There was no prize. They had less money. They were disappointed. And it was such a frustrating and empty feeling. Revelation 15 and 16 talk about game over. I mean, this is a final game over. Uh, you know, we are walking through the completion of God's wrath here in these two chapters. I mean, if people could walk away disappointed and frustrated and empty, that would actually be a great thing. But the truth is, those who are walking with culture hand in hand with this world and with the enemy of this world, they're not going to walk away at all. You know, these two chapters, they talk a, about a different kind of done. It's a completion that leads to perfection. 
And what we're about to read, it is awesome. It is all inspiring. It is sobering. And it's absolutely final. Look at what John writes in Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, Then I saw another great and all-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and, and those who had won the victory over the beast, its image, and the number of its name, they were, they were standing on the sea of glass with harps that were from God. This is all inspired. This is, John says, this is awesome. I know each and every one of us at some point in our life, we were like, hey, that's awesome. Like saying anything is awesome is an injust to how incredible and how awesome and how awe-inspiring God is. This scene is incredible. And we see the sea of glass once again. You might remember the sea of glass. It was mentioned back in chapter four, some, some great expanse that is reflecting the glory of God. But here, this, this sea of glass, it's mixed with fire, which probably alludes to the fact that judgment is on its way. In these two chapters, judgment is arriving. And real quick, look back at Revelation 15:1. God's wrath will be complete. Wherever you are, if you're in your Bible, underline that word complete. If you're in your Revelation journal, open up, circle the word complete. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. What this means is, is it's it. It's final. And things are heating up. And I'm talking quite literally. Because uh, when we saw these seals kind of being pumped out, all these seven seals, we saw a quarter of the earth was devastated. And then a few chapters later, we see these trumpet judgments. And, and we see an actual third of everything uh, being impacted. And with these bold judgments, what we're about to, to go through today, all of the earth in its entirety is impacted and affected. This is it. This is it, and these are the last plagues. You know, we should all note that there are the victorious standing there. They're, they're celebrating, they're cheering. Those who have fought the beast and, and were killed, they actually didn't lose. You know, death isn't the end for those who are following Jesus. They didn't lose. They're a part of the winning team. And they're standing on this sea of glass uh, in the presence of God, in the reflection of his glory. And none of them are sad. They're not embarrassed. They're not fearful. What they're doing, look at verse 3. They are celebrating. They sang. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Like this is a reflection of what we might remember from the Old Testament. Look, let's uh, see what they sang. Great and awe-inspiring are your works. Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. They are just singing. They are celebrating. This vision that John is giving us is reminding us of what once happened in Egypt. This song is a reflection of the celebration of Moses and the Israelites that we saw uh, in the book of Exodus. What's happening here, and you might want to write this down because it's important. This is a celebration. As God's wrath is coming, uh, the saints are celebrating. And we're not really celebrating that others are coming to an end or others are being hurt or devastation is being brought. We're celebrating how awesome and amazing God is. We're celebrating his faithfulness. We're celebrating everything that he has promised is now like fully and finally coming true. 
This isn't just a celebration. It's a reminder of his faithfulness and his covenant promise to Israel. You know, he delivered them from their enemy, the Egyptians. And you can remember back in Exodus chapter 14, uh, as, as God used Moses to part that sea, right? And then the Israelites walked across on dry land. And as, as Pharaoh's people, his men, his army were chasing, uh, the, the waters came crashing down on Pharaoh's army. And in that moment, it, the Israelites were delivered from their enemy. The Israelites, they realized that it was God's judgment against their enemy that provides their deliverance. And what he's communicating here in Revelation 15 and 16 to these seven small churches in Asia Minor, as well to each and every one of us, is that he remembers his covenant promise with us, with you and I today. And as God is pouring out his wrath, and when his wrath is fully and finally realized, once again, his people will be found in an exodus. You know, God will ultimately deliver his people and he'll deliver his church from the enemy of this world. And we will exodus off into a new heaven and a new earth. And John continues to write in verse 5. He says, look, after, after this I, I looked. And in the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of the testimony was open. Like the full glory of God is coming. That's what John is seeing you know, this is, this is tremendous comfort for the people of God, and yet it is a terrifying reality for all of God's enemies. Everything that we're about to see is coming from the heavenly temple. It's coming from the tabernacle of testimony. In other words, in other words, all of this is coming from God himself. He is opening and he is sending these angels out for final judgment. Can you imagine this? If you are not imagining scripture as you are hearing it and as you are reading it, you're missing out. I just want you to visualize this. Imagine these doors, they're just busting open and I'm just imagining full and fast, just sort of like an explosion just pushes these doors open. And then for me, the rest of this chapter just happens in slow motion. Look at this, verse 6 through 8. Out of the temple came the seven angels. Can you imagine this? These doors bust open in hyperspeed and then everybody just kind of walks out in slow motion. Like I'm imagining that there's music playing, like intro music playing for these angels as they're coming out. I imagine this walkout music is this epic scene. Can, can you, what would their walkout music be? What what would you play as these angels bust out and walk through this door? What's, what's their theme? Because I'm telling you, when I, when I see this, I zoom in. It's slow motion. It's probably like a, these angels are coming out in some kind of triangle format, like in the Mighty Ducks, and it's super slow. I don't know what you, what you shouted out, what your walkout music for these angels would be, but I know what the right answer is. It's Europe, the final countdown, because it is on. It is happening, and it is all happening for me in slow motion. Look at, look at the rest of these verses. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in pure bright linen with golden sashes wrapped around their chest. This golden sash is a reflection of what we saw on Jesus earlier. And these pure white linens dressed in pure bright linens, it's a reflection of their purity. Like this, this declaration, this mission is not coming from them. They are just pure enough to carry it out. Look at the rest of the verses. Uh, one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power. And, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. You know, whenever God unveils his full majesty, it's, it's absolutely overwhelming. 
And when the cloud of glory fills the temple in heaven, nobody can enter it. And it was the same in Exodus chapter 40 when, when Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle when the smoke of the cloud of God's glory filled the tent. This is awesome. God's wrath is, is being set in motion to absolute completeness. And see the word completed here? Again, just like underline it or highlight it. We're going to take note of it and we're going to come back to it a little bit later. Look at uh, Revelation 16 verse 1. Then... I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. There's a command, a declaration. It's time to go. Go and pour out this wrath. We might remember another go. I think back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, when Jesus commands all of his followers, which command would also trickle down to each and every one of us throughout history where Jesus says, go and make disciples. And Jesus knew this moment was coming. Not only that this moment was coming, but that there was a time to rescue people from this time. This is a completely different go. And now in Revelation 16, God is releasing the seven angels to fully and finally pour out his wrath, seven bowls of wrath as judgments over all the world. Look at, look at verse two, the first bowl. The first went and, and poured out his bowl on the earth and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast, underline that, and who worshiped its image. Everything that we're seeing here, all of these bowls of wrath, everything that's being poured out as judgment, it's, it's not for believers. This is only for unbelievers. These judgments are for the ruler of this world and those who worship this world. It's so clear. You know, these people have, have somehow, some way taken on the mark of the beast. They are identifying with the world. That's, that's their identity. They are wearing this identity. And God hates it when we make our sin our identity. You might know somebody, they're just kind of like, hey, this is just who I am. This is, this is where my allegiance is. It's where my alliances lie. I just need you to accept me the way I am. Humanity doesn't get to choose what sin is and what sin is not. If you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping in the wrong direction. You know, Jesus spent so much time with, with sinners. He spent time with tax collectors, drunks, thieves, and liars. He spent so much time with them. He, he, he gained the, the nickname, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's a friend to sinners. He's a friend of sinners. But, but nowhere in the gospel, nowhere in the entirety of scripture do we ever see that Jesus is friendly towards sin. You see, there's a huge difference between Jesus being a friend to sinners and Jesus being friendly towards sin. This doesn't happen. These are not equal. Jesus loves the people, but he is disgusted by what breaks our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And what's great about Jesus is that, that we all get to absolutely come to Jesus just the way we are. But Jesus loves us way too much to leave us that way. For people who are not yet following Jesus, and you might want to write this down, any who are unwilling to experience how much God loves them, they will ultimately experience how much God hates sin. It's a fact. God loves each and every one of us so much that he sent his son to, 
pay the price for the sin in our lives. And if we reject that, then, then we, I mean, that debt still needs to be paid. For those who reject uh, his grace, uh, who turn from him, who worship the things of this world, they're going to experience his judgment forever. Like that is the point of these seven bowls. God's wrath is, is only following on people who have the mark of this world and who are worshiping uh, the beast uh, and, and worshiping this world. Like some people, they, they've taken the mark of this world and yet there are others who have this relationship with Jesus that have a mark of protection. We see that throughout Revelation as well. You know, his coming wrath is not for the church, not at all. God's people will experience tribulation, persecution, and difficulty, but we will never, ever experience his wrath. That doesn't mean you and I are consequence-free from our sin. I mean, there are consequences on this earth in this time for the sin in our lives. But we will never, ever experience God's wrath. You know, that's the grace and mercy of Jesus in action. He steps in and he drinks that cup of wrath for us. When you give your life to Jesus, we get to let his sacrifice pay for the sin in our lives. His perfect sacrificial death and his resurrection. He fully defeats sin and death, satisfying the wrath of God. In the second bowl, in verse 3, the second poured out his bowl into the sea and it turned to blood like that of a dead person. And all life in the sea had died. I don't know if you can picture this, but I mean, there's dead everywhere, rotting fish. If you're in the text, you can smell it, you can see it, and it is atrocious. It would be terrible to live, and your world would just be like closing in on you. And by the way, first century people reading this, hearing this, thinking about this, they know exactly what this means. This is a blow to their economy. God is taking away all of what they can work for to earn. I mean, like, they're fishermen. They use the sea for travel. They use the, the, the waterways to get places and to get their cargo to other places. It, it, like, this is an attack on, on business and the way of living. Like, if you're trying to trust your own work and your own wealth and your seniority and your resume, it's not going to work. You know, God's authority and his power and his wrath are going to take that all away for those who worship the enemy. Look at verse 4. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Like, you can go without food for several days, but now the spring water, the drinking water, is under attack. Water is life. Entire cities were built around waterways, and water was being redirected so that cities could drink and live and thrive. Water supplies are now just gone. And after the third bowl is poured out, an angel begins to, to worship and praise God for, for his just judgments, for all of his righteousness. It's a reminder that so much justice that you and I experience is flawed. It's imperfect. But God never gets it wrong. You know, he, he's created a standard and, and either we measure up on our own or we find a substitute. In the person of Jesus. Jesus perfectly provides that substitution. Look at verses 8 and 9. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. The people were scorched by the intense heat, so they blasphemed God. Uh, they blasphemed the name of God who, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. 
This is interesting because we, we saw a judgment earlier. One of the trumpet judgments talked about the sun taking away a third of its light in the day. There was a third of the light gone at night. And here, it's like the same kind of thing, but, but on the opposite end of the spectrum. Because this time the sun is out and it's allowed to burn and scorch and rage. And as a result, people are shaking their fist at God. They're so frustrated. They're so mad. But you know what's interesting? They acknowledge. They acknowledge him. It's not like he's a mystery or a secret. It's not like they don't know what's happening and, and who this is coming from. They know that God is in charge and these, these judgments are coming at them through the hand of God. These people know these plagues are from him. They know that he's all powerful. And, and instead of repenting, and turning from their evil ways, they lay blame and they curse God. It's so crazy how some of us are so quick to be in the wrong place, to do the wrong thing, and to blame somebody else for the situation we got ourselves in. And then the fifth bowl, it unleashes torment on idols and, and those who worship the beast and who worship this world instead of God. And then they're rushed into darkness. They're separated from the one true living God and they suffer in anguish. And scripture says they still didn't repent. Back to back, they didn't repent. Thrust into darkness, they still didn't repent of their works. And then the sixth bowl, it's not really a picture of judgment as much as it's a picture of preparation for wrath in this seventh bowl. Look at, look at what the sixth bowl says. Then I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the, from the beast's mouth, and, and from the mouth of the false prophets. Like here, we see in verse 13, we see the dragon, the first beast, we see the false prophet, and, and, and we saw these in, in chapters 12 and 13. This, this unholy trinity. They're sending out deceptive demonic spirits that call together the forces and the powers of this world to fight against God and his people. There's a battle. There's a battle raging for your soul. And we see it here still in the end times. And then the seventh bowl. You know, all of this leads to the seventh bowl where ultimate judgment is fully poured out across the earth. The history of the world comes to a close as a massive earthquake. And, and get this, 100 pound hail is falling from heaven upon all these unbelievers. It's a, it's a terrifying sight. You know, we had, we had hail roll through central Iowa just a few days ago. Like I'm, I remember being a kid and we had a crazy hailstorm in Ohio. And, and uh, I remember going outside, there were golf ball sized hail. It was the biggest hail I had ever seen in my life to this point in my life. And then just uh, a few days ago, John Fontenot, our life group pastor, he sent me these pictures. Check this out. This is his backyard. Uh, this, this is in August. Like it looks like it snowed, uh, just giant. And some of these are golf ball size, but look at this. Some of them are even bigger. That's like the, I don't know, the size of a baseball, uh, an oversized racquetball. This terrified us in Iowa. This destroyed so many homes and cars. And yet when we look at the text, Scripture says there's actually going to be 100-pound hail falling from heaven upon unbelievers all over the earth. This hail is just a small part of what is being unleashed within these seven bowls, being poured out and thrown into the air. And 
what we read in scripture is that, that the rulers and the ways of this world drank the cup of wine filled with the fury of God's wrath. Like that's what's happening. This is the climactic final judgment. In fact, John writes in, in verse 17, he says, Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Like what a celebration. A celebration of victory. When I read this, it brought joy to my heart, brought a smile to my face. I'm like, this, this is a reflection of what we've seen earlier in the Gospels from Jesus. It's a little different though, right? It doesn't say I'm done, but it is done. What is it? It is the assignment. You know, Jesus became sin in the Gospels on the cross to provide a pathway so that people wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God. And here, it is done. You see, in the Gospels, you know, Jesus finished his work on the cross to provide salvation. And here in Revelation 15 and 16, God actually finished his work in this world to completely, to fully, and to finally eliminate sin. Jesus is eliminating sin for people. And here, God is eliminating sin and pouring out his wrath on the world. It's done. It doesn't need to be redone. It can't be done better. This is why uh, the victorious were singing at the beginning of Revelation chapter 15. The final steps were being set in motion. They were, they were celebrating victory. And today, today we're, we're fighting from victory. We're not fighting for victory. Like even though the, the end times uh, are not here, the end of time has been declared. And Jesus wins. Look at this from Romans chapter 1 verse 18. I love this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath doesn't fall on people because they didn't have a chance, because they didn't have an opportunity. It doesn't fall on people because they don't know who it's from. God's wrath. People don't refuse because, because the evidence that God's real isn't there. People didn't repent because they suppressed the truth. Time after time they chose what their itching ears wanted to hear from this world instead of the truth that was plain right before their eyes, through scripture, through the person of Jesus. And what I know is when truth is suppressed, our hearts drift. Our hearts, they harden. We see it happening to people on earth all over the place. And we see it here in the text with those who have taken on the mark of the beast. We saw it in the Old Testament, hard hearts. And we see, we see Pharaoh with his heart hardening over and over until it's harder and harder. Pretending that, that God is not there or pretending that he's, he's not real only fools you and it only fools you for a little bit. In fact, if you're taking notes, I'd love it if you'd write this down. God's wrath, it only falls in two directions. It only falls in two directions. Uh, it's always going to fall on those who have rejected his grace. You know, if you reject what Jesus is offering, it's going to fall on you. And none of us can stand up under that. None of us have the power to endure through the wrath of God. The other direction is 
that it can fall on the one who provides the grace. We have a, we have a, a sin problem and that, that sin becomes a debt in our relationship with God and either we pay that debt or we let Jesus pay that debt. God's wrath is going to fall on those who have rejected his grace. God's wrath is already falling on the one who provided that grace. God's wrath is, is not being poured out yet today, though. Like, this is good news. There's still time to, to make uh, the decision to ask Jesus to be your Savior. That while we deserve death, he's willing to give us life. And while we deserve to be condemned, he's offering us mercy. You and I, we deserve rejection, but he gives us acceptance. And when we really deserve to be cut off, he gives us another chance. God loves you. Look at uh, John three thirty six. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life instead they will see the wrath of God. That'll remain on them for the history of eternity. But there's time. God's wrath is only going to fall on those who have rejected his grace or fall on the one, Jesus Christ, who provides that grace. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thanks for the opportunity to be in your word, to, to uh, be encouraged by your word to celebrate and praise how awesome, righteous, and holy you are. And Lord, put a fire in our feet to go and spread this news to people who are in desperate need of hope in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, maybe you noticed that uh, we have some communion elements out on the table. Uh, hopefully you have something with you wherever you're watching. Um, I want to tell you something. You don't need to be a member of Valley Church to take communion, but you do need to be a member of the family of God. So if you've given your life to Jesus, communion can be for you. Because communion is a celebration of what Jesus has done for us in his finished work on the cross, but it's also anticipation for what he's about to do in his return to come and take his church and his people in Exodus us into a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, the Apostle Paul says on the night Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says, for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Church, just like this passage, communion is a celebration over somebody who gave their life to rescue the world. Take whenever you're ready. Love you guys.